Welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. Uh, as always, we're brought to you by Cathcart Associates, so big thank you to them. On today's episode, I am speaking to Wojtek Kuberski, co-founder of Nanny ML, a startup bridging the gap between business and AI in production, helping to monitor decisions made by machine learning systems to make sure they are adding value. Welcome to the show. Hello there. Happy to be here. Thank you for coming on. You are in Lisbon, is that right? Correct. Oh man, I'm so jealous. I've been once for a stag do, and I really want to come back just to like, just to walk around rather than be stuck in a pub. Yeah, Lisbon is amazing. The weather here is great. People are great. Just everything is just superb. That's so nice. And how did you end up there? Because I know you're from Poland originally, right? And then you studied in Belgium. So how did Lisbon come around? So I traveled around for a while. I think I lived in like six countries across Europe so far, including the Netherlands, Germany, Italy, Austria for a while, Belgium, and then Portugal. So after I did my master's in Belgium, I've honestly had enough of terrible weather there. And also the food is nothing to write home about. And I actually started looking into like one of the southern countries as I was already working remotely. My income was not dependent on the location. Out of the countries in consideration, basically everything on the Mediterranean, one of the options. And then I decided that Portugal is basically the cheapest option. People actually do speak English here, unlike in, you know, in Spain or in Italy. And taxes are quite friendly. And the startup ecosystem is maybe not thriving yet, but it's definitely growing fast, much faster than any other country. So. That's the only option. And now I think Lisbon is literally the place if you want to start a startup or grow a team. That's the place to be. It seems like, I don't know if it's maybe just because of the job that I do that I keep an eye on like where companies are, are coming up, but it seems to be lots of good data companies springing out of Lisbon. Absolutely. Which can't be a coincidence. You're right. And it seems like a good choice. I mean, and, and the weather, right? I mean, it's just a nice place to be. So before we jump into Nanny ML and what you and the team are building. You mentioned your master's already, so let's jump back into kind of education. So you started your kind of education in Poland, right? Doing a mechanical engineering and applied computer science degree. That's correct. That is really nothing special. One kind of standout thing there is that my bachelor was already in English, which helped me a lot because all the concepts like mathematical and physical concepts are already internalized in English which I notice is a huge difference as you inevitably start learning everything in English because you just have to nowadays. I really kind of had a head start because I was already used to that. That helped a lot. And one nice thing is that we're also kind of de facto forced to go on an Erasmus exchange. Uh, there was a special semester reserved just for the Erasmus. These were basically two standard things about my degree. And where did you go for the Erasmus year or uh, block? Yeah, so I went to the Netherlands to a university of Enschede, which is kind of a small city in the middle of nowhere. If you can be in the middle of nowhere in the Netherlands. Yeah, it was great there. I loved it. I love their style of teaching. I would recommend basically everyone, if they can, to choose Netherlands as their Erasmus country because it's, it's fun. You can party a lot. And you are taught a lot and you don't even realize that. Like, as long as you attend lectures, you will learn so much. That's interesting. So you did a degree in Poland with an Erasmus in the Netherlands and then a master's in Belgium. So we actually had a 
person on the podcast recently where we talked about different style of teaching. So he'd done uh, Turkey and then Finland and then Denmark. Is there one that sticks out to you in terms of kind of Poland, Belgium, or Netherlands where you just kind of enjoyed it the most in terms of teaching style? Yeah, definitely Netherlands. So I'm going to shoot on Belgium here a bit. Is that their style of teaching is actually quite antiquated. It's really based on self-study a lot, learning from books. And then you have one exam a semester. If you fail it, you need to wait half a year basically to take it. And I really like the kind of four... What masters, however they call it, the quarters, they have quarters instead of semesters in the Netherlands, which is really nice because it kind of is more fast-paced, but also teaching, uh, it's kind of more, I don't know, American, when they actually try to explain the concepts, make you understand the concepts, and not only learn them by heart. And that's a huge difference, of course. I think we've talked about this on the show before, but I just, I don't understand the exam culture at university. Like, you learn so much but then you just have to remember one part of it really well for an hour. And then you can forget it forever if you want. Like, I mean, depends what subject you do, right? Like, it's a strange way of doing things. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. I agree. So you ended up, I mean, it kind of makes sense that the mechanical engineering, applied computer science into a master's around AI. You then stayed at that university in Belgium to start a PhD, right? Yeah, so the way it happened is basically my bachelor thesis was about optimization of a mechanical thing without going too much into details. And then I realized I like optimization more than actual mechanical stuff. So I decided to go into that and that kind of led to AI. I finished my bachelor's one year ahead of time, but then I took a year break to basically learn how to program. I tried starting a startup back then, but it completely failed. It's not surprising. If you do it during your studies. Then after my master's in Belgium, I stayed for a PhD, but I did never honestly treated it very seriously, to be honest. I gave it a try, but also at the same time, I was always okay with decided to go out of it. And I just got a few good opportunities and decided it's time to drop out. I also didn't really get along with my supervisor. Yeah, there was no reason to stay on. Yeah, it's one of those, like we've chatted to a bunch of people that have either done a PhD or they've considered it or whatever. And some people have loved it and they would recommend it to anyone. Some people have said that they got through it, but didn't really enjoy it. And other people like you who've just decided it's not right. But it's definitely good that you've realized that early before you spent four or five, six years, like just kind of plodding away at a university trying to do something. So no, that makes sense. And what was the startup that you tried that didn't work out? What what was the plan? Oh, man, that's so long ago. So basically, the main premise was that it was supposed to be a marketplace for ecological food, something completely unrelated to AI. And the idea is that we would cut out the middlemen, so it would go directly from the farmers to the end customer. And there are actually marketplaces like that. There's a big one in France. I don't remember the name. So the idea definitely works. It just we couldn't execute it well. No, that makes sense. And it's cool that you just tried to do it though, and like it's probably helped you in the new thing because you've tried something already. And before, so once you decided PhD life wasn't for you, before you started Nanny ML, you kind of worked as a freelance data scientist, right? So how did how did that come about, and like how did you end up finding? customers like was was that an easy process surprisingly so yes 
I mean, I guess because of the market for, for data is, you know, has always been hot and now it's as hot as ever, but it was already hot back then a few years ago. So basically I got freelance gigs kind of all over the place. Uh, I had a client in Poland, a client in Switzerland, a client in the US, and also one in Belgium. After a while, I actually kind of turned into a consultancy, but it's still there and alive. We handed it off to, to a friend of me who's now running it and he's doing great. So basically, after I think I got like three clients at the same time, I decided I cannot handle it alone. So I got a friend of mine, Hakim, who's also now a co-founder at Nanimel, joined me in my freelance company called Prophecy Labs. And then we grew to around, I think, 12 people. So that was a, a decent year. Then COVID hit us. So some people lost some revenues, lost some clients. And also because I always wanted to start a product company, freelance was kind of a stepping stone. And then the consultancy was another stepping stone. And then in the consultancy, we were always looking to find kind of repeatable problems that we can potentially turn into a product. And one of these ideas, the idea that stuck was we deliver an end-to-end project for a client and they would always ask us, okay, now what, how do I make sure that this thing still works properly? And it was way too much work to do it in a custom way. It just didn't make sense. And also there were no products or anything that we could recommend to them. So after a while, we said like, that actually sounds like a perfect idea. And there is an actual market pool, which rarely happens in reality. You always have the stories that, yeah, you know, I was the first to say I really wanted it, but most of the time this is bullshit or it's a huge exaggeration. But this time it was real. We really had, obviously all of our clients were asking, okay, how do I make sure that it doesn't fail? One of the big issues with startups, right, is that people have an idea without necessarily solving a problem. Whereas you guys did it the total opposite way, like, you were building stuff already and the problem became more apparent. So like, yeah, the consultancy is quite a good way of learning because the consultancy, you're working with different clients, different problems, different solutions. But if they all have the same headache at the end of the day, then yeah, you're right. It's like, it's the perfect storm. 100%. That was exactly the idea. Obviously, we're talking about the idea being Nanny ML, which is what you are doing now. So it was about this time last year, kind of October 2020, that it really kind of became something. So for anyone that doesn't know kind of what NannyML does, what, what is the problem that you're solving? Like, how does it work? So basically the kind of the tagline is that we protect the impact of your models. As you deploy your models in production, they're supposed to have some kind of business impact. As time goes on, the data will change because the world changes that the models operate in. And as this data changes, it is likely to happen that the models will deteriorate due to what's called data drift and concept drift. Data drift is when your kind of input data changes in time. And concept drift is when the mapping between your input variables and what you're actually trying to predict changes. Because of these two things, your impact will probably deteriorate over time. And instead of making money, you might even start losing money. And what we're trying to do is basically we monitor your machine learning in production. We look at early warning signals of performance being at risk. And then we inform you what happened, uh, why it happened, and how to solve. So that's kind of the, the elevator pitch. I like it. And you can tell you've done that to some investors. 
Is it quite a common problem, do you think, that some companies, especially during the kind of boom time of 2016, 2017, they hired one or two data scientists, they built some pretty interesting models, they maybe worked back then, and then that data scientist moves on, they maybe replace them, maybe they don't, and the model just keeps churning away for ages and nobody looks at it again. Like, Is that one of the big things that you guys see? That is something that's definitely one of the problems. I'm not sure if it's the most prevalent reason for basically models failing, but it's definitely one of them. We've seen some companies that still have models in SaaS that have been working for, I don't know, 10 years plus, a very simple logistic regression, and there is no way that this model is good, but they don't even know the quality of the predictions. So it's definitely an issue. And then... Does your tool help data scientists or does it help companies or both? So the correct answer is obviously both. First and foremost, right now, I would say the idea is to protect the the impact. So it's something that's B2B oriented. And it's really about making sure that once you deploy your model as a data scientist, you can move on without really thinking about it like, oh, it failed again and I need to work on it. Because that's something that me as a data scientist and basically all my data science friends really hate doing. Like, we want to keep on building new cool stuff, solve new use cases, figure out new problems, go back to prototyping, which is always super interesting, and not really worry about the models breaking and having to redevelop it and maintaining and all that. So that's kind of where we come in, and that is kind of where they cog in the machine. And our cog is to basically make sure that the models work well. Nice. And do you like, does NaniML just, does that plug into their current data platform, if you like? Or is some of your job recommending like how they set everything up? So like to make it optimized or do you guys, can you plug into anything? So we come after deployment where when everything is already set up and the way we operate is typical SaaS. So ideally, and what we're trying to push for uh, with most of our clients is to have serverless SaaS. So we just have a, you know, an endpoint or a library or a CLI, whatever they prefer, where they can send the data, we give them back the insights and the dashboard, and that's it. So basically, because it's an API endpoint or any other things, when there is a well-defined interface, it works with anything. As long as you have model inputs and model outputs, that's all we need. And does it work? In any industry, because I think on some of the website, like marketing from you guys, is it quite prevalent in financial services, but you could apply this to anywhere? We focus on financial services mostly because that's where it seems like the value is. So that's where really you have the models that run in production, they have significant impact, and they need to be monitored. Finance seems to be quite ahead compared to other industries here. Also, right now, we're focusing only on tabular data. Because basically it's more unstable, so we think we can provide more value for tabular data use cases as compared to videos. For example, just to give you an example of concept, right? So the idea of like what is the relationship between the target variable and the inputs. In case of let's say a churn model, it might be that customer behavior changes. Maybe people, young people used to churn, they no longer churn because something happened. But in computer vision, a cat is a cat. It will not stop being a cat. It looks like a cat. It will not grow another leg. It's just a cat. So we can focus on financial industry because it's 
seems like we can provide the most value, but non-EML can work in any industry as long as the data is tabular and, and we work only currently on supervised learning use cases. That makes sense. Do you have a team of data scientists within NaniML, or do you more need software engineers, for example? So surprisingly, it's mostly data scientists. And of course, we have a mix, as you always do. But because what we're trying to solve is much harder than we expected, especially if you try to not only detect data drift, but actually figure out how it links back to performance. So trying to predict performance, even if you don't have ground truth, just based on data drift, how data changes and what things could have gone wrong. This is a very challenging problem that actually hasn't been solved. Kind of an open research question. So we actually have to research data scientists that just focus on solving this problem and things around it. And then we have a few people that are in between uh, machine learning engineer and then a few people on the software side as well. No, that makes sense. And do you find that from a sales point of view, is it easier to get buy-in because you're a data scientist speaking to data scientists? Or do you often have to speak to the business people first? to try and kind of get this into companies? So at first we had this incredibly misguided idea that we'll try to sell to business people first, which was terrible because they just didn't understand the problem, most of them anyway. But once we realized that what we actually, who we should be talking to is data science managers, heads of data science, CTOs of startups, whatever you call it, basically extremely technical people or data people uh, who are in decision-making position. These are really the people that we're targeting when it comes to sales because they already understand the problem. They understand the implications of the problem on the business side so they can actually understand the value that we can bring. And they are technical enough to realize that it's a problem worth solving and it's not an easy problem to solve. That makes sense. And then obviously you can sell that because you're a data scientist and one of the co-founders. When you're building a sales team, if they're not technical, does that become a challenge, do you think, when they have to try and approach a head of data science about a data science problem when they're not a data scientist? That is a huge problem. That is an insane problem. What we were realizing slowly is that data scientists are really a special breed of people. It's not just you know a few of us that were all different from engineers. We are completely different also from software engineers. One thing we noticed, uh, I recently held a user test we're following kind of the sprint design sprint methodology from Google Ventures to do fast customer discovery. And at the end, you have a user test with five users. And what we re- realized is that they are all extremely lazy and myself included, of course. They don't really want to, you know, set up anything, configure anything, send configuration files. This is like, no, 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 no. Give me a one liner. I want a decorator in my library at most. Talking to them, understanding them is completely different for even from engineers. And I think non-technical people would struggle to sell. I think the first conversation and kind of doing the sales development representative job, if you're a non-technical person, I think that's fine. That's doable. But really closing the sale, that's not happening. And was that something that you and the co-founders, was that something that became apparent quite early that listen if we want to make this work like we're not going to get to be super hands-on technical we're going to have to get other people to do that and we're going to be the face of the company the sales the market and like all that stuff like did you guys know that ahead of time or did you learn that recently i think we are kind of still learning it 
And we're still finding our place in the company. We're kind of all over the place as founders often are. I sit mostly in research in general, like day-to-day management of the technical team and in technical sales. So again, kind of all over the place. And I think like we'll definitely have to be the face of the company. And I don't see anyone else closing deals anytime soon. But when it comes to kind of filling the sales funnel, that is absolutely possible for a non-technical person to do. Yeah, of course. I mean, I suppose that makes sense from a startup. You can get people to essentially open some doors and because you're only one person, right? So you can't do it all. But then you go in to, to kind of finish it off. And I suppose that's one of the things that's came up a lot on the show, actually, is that quite often technical founders can find very good technical people to do great work. But selling it, you're the best person to sell it because it's, it's your idea, it's your company. like, And you understand the technical side, but you also understand the business side. It's hard to get that. So that makes sense. And I'm sure as you keep growing, that will become easier. But yeah, I think at the stage you're at, that totally makes sense. In the year that you've been going, has the initial idea changed or is it just refined? Like you're still trying to solve exactly the same problem as you thought, but you've just learned some stuff along the way. I would say it's only refined. The biggest change was actually kind of the main value proposition and the main ICP, so ideal customer persona. At first, we thought that we're going to go directly for the enterprises and target business people there and sell mostly the insights with monitoring being kind of a absolutely necessary, but not the value itself. And now we realize more that the monitoring is what brings value itself. And we really should focus on technical people. And also right now we're focusing much more on startups and scale-ups because they close faster. They are much nicer to work with. They also understand the problem better than some of the enterprises, at least. We also have an enterprise client, but we're not focusing on that anymore. I mean, obviously, we're not a data company, but it's exactly the same as us. Like When we have new people join us, I think they think we will go after the banks and the public sector and huge enterprise, whereas in reality, we work with a couple of enterprise customers. In general, it's really small SMEs because like you said, they're much nicer to work with. They move faster. They understand the problem. It totally makes sense. I I know what you mean. Recently as well, you got a million euros kind of seed funding, I think pretty early in the journey. So was that something that was in the works from the start? Like how did you find that process of actually bringing money into the business? Was it okay? Yeah, it was a journey definitely. So we actually like to call it pre-seed. Because it was really early, basically you raised on a deck. We had, of course, a few lines of code, but the code was not working properly. So it was really just the idea. And when we decided to go full into product, we also decided that it makes sense to raise first because we had a working consultancy that was bringing a nice stream of cash. And then we didn't want to be really tempted to go back to consulting. We didn't want to have money issues. We say that if we are to really start it and be able to fully dedicate ourselves to a product company, which we wanted to do, we need to be funded because otherwise it's just too easy to go back to a day rate. And we would still be pretending that, yes, we are doing product in the background. Let's just do a day rate here and there. But I've seen so many consultancies that try to start a product as a side business and it almost never works because they just pretend to be a product company, but they're still a consultancy at heart. That's so interesting. I actually know or two companies that are 
probably in that state of flux just now where I'm sure their marketing would tell you they're a product company, but I'm almost certain that under the hood, they are a consultancy. They have a product, and I'm sure some of their customers who they do consultancy for have data in that product. But I don't think anyone is going to them to buy the product. Like it's it's almost like it's a given that if you're consulting that you will use their product, but nobody's just using it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's exactly what you said. You end up just kind of almost masquerading as a product company when really it's just the same old. And that's what we really wanted to avoid. So we went for the round first. Actually, one of my co-founders, Hakim, was, was handling the process. I was just there at the end to kind of vet the VCs from our side and maybe sell them a bit on the, on the technical side of things. But the way it worked is that we had, first of all, we got extremely lucky having a few good mentors. One of them is Stan from Colibra. He's one of the co-founders of Colibra, which is, a, I think, the biggest Belgian unicorn. So he introduced us to a couple of VCs. And then as we got the first meetings, we would always ask for more interest, more interest, more interest. And after a while, you get the snowball effect when we ended up, I think, talking to like 70 or 80 of them. We are right now also raising our second round. I just started and kind of the same process, but we also have access to already a lot of people. And we're also doing a lot of cold outreach on top of that. Nice. And will it be a, a kind of traditional like VC round rather than like a crowdfund, for example? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be VC just because it seems like currently money is reasonably cheap. There is a lot of it in the market. And I think, you know, what we're building really has a promise. And I think we can just go for VCs. Nice. And would the plan be to do, would this be like an actual seed round or would this be like a Series A? Oh, it's seed, it's seed. We don't have the metrics for Series A. So then you just kind of, once you get the seed, you start working towards those metrics and then Series A, B, all the way up to whatever. I mean, we're obviously working towards these metrics already, but we would like to get additional funding to just go faster. Yeah, that makes sense. And so a lot of the time funding goes hand in hand with hiring. And, and obviously it's, it's a topic we always talk about on the show because of my background, but also because it's interesting. So I think Nanny's around 12 people. Is that right? Nine, I believe. I took that from LinkedIn, which is often a couple out. So, so nine people. But We have a couple of investors put Nanny ah, okay. on their LinkedIn. Oh, they don't count. So nine people. And uh, you, I think I'm right in saying this, all over Europe, totally remote from the start, right? 100%. How has the general, because you grew the consultancy, I suppose you were already quite used to having people working for you so that probably gave you some insight but how was it growing a product company but also then do you have any top tips for like a a founder now that wants to look at a fully remote like how does did you guys do anything interesting with that so we've always been fully remote kind of the ogs way before the pandemic always working remotely i think when it comes to hiring just the biggest thing it just gives you insane talent pool and you just get to pick the best people from around Europe. We are right now kind of limited in our hiring to Europe only because we like to meet from time to time, face to face. And we need to be able to do it with like, you know, one day notice. And I just buy a ticket to Belgium or to Greece or to wherever. And it shouldn't be a problem. If we had someone in Japan, that is an entire trip that you need to plan. You lose 40 hours back and forth 
So it's just not feasible. When it comes to tips for hiring, I think remote is actually easier because you're not really boxed into one country or one city even. When it comes to running the company that's remote, I think the biggest thing is meeting in person actually matters a lot. Even if you're 100% remote, retreats, working together budget when we have a special budget that people can just fly over to whoever they want and just work together for a couple of days. These things are extremely important, especially for strategy work, brainstorming, and really solving the hardest problems. If you go into actual development, then of course you can do it remotely. But for example, right now in two weeks, we're going to run another design sprint about the product and we're going to do it in person in Lisbon. But you bring the team over, like that's part of like a perk of working for you guys that you bring them over. We never really spoke about this with anyone and I don't know if it, if you'll have an answer for it, but in terms of growing a team remotely from a business point of view, do you have to set up like legal registered companies in every location that you hire or do they work as like a contractor technically? So most of them work technically as freelancers, but of course we give them all the benefits, all the perks and all the stock options of employees. So they are, in reality, they are employees just legally for all the admin staff. They are contractors. We do have few employees, I think actually two, one in Belgium, just because we are incorporated in Belgium and he wanted to be an employee. So why not? He's an employee. One in Portugal. And basically the same thing happened. And funnily enough, we didn't have to actually set up a legal structure. It was possible to hire him as a employee following Portuguese law, but still using the legal entity that's located in Belgium. Nice. So it's one of those things where, because you guys have done it since the start, it will be super easy. Whereas we've got quite a lot of clients that say, well, okay, if I want to hire someone in Barcelona, but our headquarters is in Glasgow, like, what? how do we do that? And quite often, because they're a bit bigger, they don't like the answer of freelancer, but essentially employee so they find it more difficult but obviously that's where you guys will get an advantage and can probably hire really good people because of it yeah absolutely also i think the perks really help a lot because we do have like million different budgets for development you get really nice home office budgets all these things actually help because you just get to be productive on top of a decent salary yeah exactly when you do the retreats is it often work-related or do you quite like bringing everyone together not to talk about work sometimes? So far it's been only work-related but of course it's a mix so we have mostly strategy sessions there or some prototyping sessions but then in the evenings or maybe sometimes during the day we also do fun stuff. Last time we went to Malaga we had a very nice villa there with pool and all that and a chef so we even had really nice food we went to the beach a few times. We rented a very, very small, tiny yacht. You guys are living the life. Yeah, we are, kind of. That's cool, though. And so part of the seed funding, will that mean hiring lots more? And does it mean hiring more technical people? Or is it more trying to get the like strategic side of the business nailed down? So kind of our hiring philosophy is to hire only when it hurts. But the idea for the funding is that we have initial proof of traction 
We know what we're building, we know for whom we're building, and we need to know what we need to build. Which means that we need people to build it and we need people to iterate on it, we need people to sell it. So we will be hiring kind of across product, research, engineering, sales, all kind of four main pillars of our company. But it will come as needed. So we don't plan to go on a hiring splurge right after raising the seed round. We're going to do it throughout the next year or two as needed and as we grow. I like that. That was very similar to the guy that was on the show most recently, actually. And he said they'll hire when they need to, not because they have some money or they have a new client so they could get away with it. Like It's really, do we need this person? Which is a really cool way of doing it. And for the first nine people, has it been has it been like you and the founders network where you just know people and you want to work with them and they've approached you guys as well? Or have you had to really go out and like scrap for talent as well? So actually it's not that we had to do it, but we did it anyway because we prefer and we have very strong views when it comes to recruitment. We're actually kind of obsessed with recruitment. So having a very well structured process allows you to evaluate people much better than anything you would otherwise do. And we've had, I think, only one hire from the network. And even he still went through the process fully. And then we just had to convince him to join. Uh, Network is important, but if you have really good process, we have, I think, on average, around 500 applicants per role. Between 100 and 500. For data scientists, it was 500 plus. For product designer, we did it very quickly. And we just hired product designer who's going to start in three days. So next Monday. And what is the process? So what's the tried and tested? Like what makes it so good? So basically, I'll just give you a quick rundown of how it looks like. We start with defining the role. What are the things that are missing? What do we actually need? Right. Then we create a job ad. We take extreme effort to create a job ad that actually conveys it. We iterated a lot on it, even with the VCs. We talk to Andreessen, hey, this is, is this job uh, really nice? It's really important for us. Once we have that nailed down and we test it a bit, then we go into sourcing. And with sourcing, we go, try to go as wide as possible. So between five and 10 most popular job boards in Europe, something that we normally go for. By now, we have actually a list that we just follow for the technical ones. Of course, all the remote ones as well, the ones that are at least focused on Europe. And then CVs start pouring in. We have, I would say, above average salaries, the perks. We are a hot startup. We work in AI. So that gives us an edge for sure. So that's the sourcing process. That's how we get 500 applicants. And then we tend to have always a phone screen. That's 15 minutes and semi-technical. So like one technical question, a few non-technical questions, just to get a feeling about, can this person communicate? Do they have any idea about the job that they're supposed to do? Just really the basics. And do they seem honestly interested in the opportunity? These are kind of the three questions that we're trying to ask there. There, the technical questions, kind of a deep dive into what they did in their current or previous job, something that's relevant to what we're looking for. That takes around one hour. And we really go really, really deeply trying to understand whether they have good intuition behind the concept. So not just ideas not just coding, but actual intuition behind, do I understand what I'm trying to do here? We don't do any take-home assignments because we try to respect people's time. Everyone's busy and 
if these people have families, it would be kind of unfair to pit them against people who are single and 22. So there's that. And then we normally, sometimes we have another technical interview, depending on seniority, when we talk about the job they would be doing at NaniML. And we basically make them our, solve our hardest problem in the interview and see which stage they fail in. It's important to almost always go to failure because then you can really get to understand how good the person is. And we finish with a culture fit interview when it's kind of random people from the team and the founder is just coming in. And it's a roundtable discussion when every person gets to ask any question they want. And that includes the candidate. So candidate is also supposed to ask us questions. And they can be really anything. Philosophy, how to run a company, anything. What your favorite dinner is, all those kind of things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're making my job sound really easy. Like, oh yeah, we have 500 applicants. They're all really good. And we've hired all of them in two days. Well, no, the process takes ages. The process is good. And I really like the fact that you don't do a take-home test because the respect in people's time and the comparison between like a young single person to a family person is good. And also, if everybody gave everybody two, three-hour take-home tests, then when would you do them? So if you don't do them, you will automatically go to the top of most candidates' wish list. If you were already... Like if there was you and two other companies that they really, really like, your process would stand out straight away. So yeah, I mean, keep, keep doing all of that. That sounds really good. And then timing wise, so I'm pretty sure this is right. You're speaking at uh, PyData Global this weekend. Is that right? Yeah, Saturday. Nice. Working on a Saturday. I love it. Unfortunately, by the time this gets posted, you'll have already done it. But I assume, will it be getting recorded? I assume so. I think by data, global is always recorded. So yeah, I would assume so. Right. So I'll dig it out when we get this posted and link it back. But what are you? Uh, what are you speaking about? So I'm basically giving a kind of one on one on how to maintain your model. So it's more technical talk. It's really for an audience of data scientists and basically why model fails and how to exactly do what we're trying to do. So it's kind of a sneak peek under the hood. Of, of what we're what we're solving uh, at Nanimal. Nice. Definitely. I'll try and dig that out if it's uh, once it's all sorted and we'll get it posted along with the show because people will definitely want to look at that. And then last question, which is relatively open-ended, but what does 2022 look like for NaniML? What's the goals? So hopefully a term should dropping soon-ish and we're going to get another round. That's one thing. Another thing, continuing to prototype and talk to users. I'm trying to figure out really what is the favorite format they would like to see NaniML in, something that's the easiest to use. So a lot of usability testing. Continuing with research, research is going to continue to be a big thing. Uh, when we'll try to really predict performance of the models without knowing the ground truth. Expansion on the sales side, most likely. And big news is we'll probably release, almost certainly will release an open source package as well. Nice. Well, I look forward to all that and uh, we'll get this posted out and people can come find you. We'll link it back to your profile and stuff. So if anyone wants to ask any questions, I'm sure they will. But thank you so much for the time, Vitek. Really appreciate it. Likewise. It was great. Thanks, man. 